Let's turn now to Exodus chapter 15 and to the final portion beginning in verse 22. Exodus 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. Let's pray. Lord, who heals us, we are thankful for all that you reveal to us, thankful for that which you reveal about man, and particularly your people, and that which you reveal about yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would receive these things and be blessed by them as we consider it, trusting, Lord, that as you are able to make the bitter sweet, so you are able to bless this word to our benefit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come to this closing section in Exodus chapter 15, right after the song of Moses. And that means that really we have only just passed over the Red Sea. We are only now just beyond the borders of Egypt. And yet we immediately begin with what will soon enough become a cycle, what will soon enough become a refrain that we are already beginning to be familiar with, even in its incipient form back during the time of the plagues. And that is the complaining of God's people. Time and time again throughout this, we will see that God provides for them. God blesses them. God leads them. And they find some reason to complain at some point. Forget all that they've learned. Do not, do not pray to the Lord, but rather simply complain. The issue this time is lack of water, which the Lord will have to address for them now, and which he shall do so again. But this is all part of the larger picture, of course, because we're speaking about roughly a couple million people. There in this dry and flinty, this vast, inhospitable wilderness as we know it to be. And if they're going to survive at all, it's not going to be because there are, at, you know, every day's journey at the end of it, there is a tremendous supply of water and food. It's not like that. It's an inhospitable desert. And if they are to survive it, it's going to be because the Lord will exert his almighty power and in his goodness to provide for their needs in every way. And they have to be reminded of that. And we have to be reminded of that. Because the lessons for us are also of the nature that we need constant re- reminding. 
We don't find it attractive. But we have to be reminded about the nature of man. We have to be reminded about the character of God's people, unfortunately. Helpless, sinful, unworthy, and we must never forget those things. I've mentioned before and had recourse to recently be reminded that it's not just the first time. You have to be humbled. You have to be convinced that those things are true of you. Helpless, sinful, unworthy for you to receive the gospel at all. Those who are not convinced of those things, helpless, sinful, unworthy, the people who think that they can do something for themselves, something who think there is something good in them, and that they are at least to some measure worthy of notice, worthy of heaven even. Well, they cannot and will not receive the gospel. You have to be convinced of those things in the first place, but then you have to, every day of your life beyond that, remain in a situation of being mindful of this. Otherwise, you drift. Otherwise, you become self-reliant. Otherwise, you become lifted up in pride. And we know where that leads. So we must not forget these things, and it's good to have that reminder. But so much better is it, as we have the ugly mirror and we look at ourselves, we have another glass. You know how that is? We look as in a glass darkly. What is that speaking of? A mirror. So on one, we, on one hand, we have a mirror of, of ourselves that's ugly, and reminds us of our unworthiness. And then we have another mirror. And that mirror doesn't point back to us. That glass shows us Christ. Through the word of God, we find Christ in these things. And that is, of course, a beautiful picture, a beautiful portrait that we see. Because we also find something or are reminded of something with regard to the character of God. That God, once again, is merciful and good to them nonetheless. This is not the first time even here that they have complained. It's not the first time that they have acted very unworthy of their status of being God's people. And God would have been well within his rights to let them go. But beyond that, in particular, we find out some entirely new aspect of the character of God, one that we have not heard thus far. Not only that he is the Lord, and remember, that is the the covenant name of God that was revealed in Exodus 3. This is the wonderful, progressive revelation of God. We knew him as, as creator at the very beginning of Genesis. And as time goes on, we learn more about him. And we learn in Exodus 3, he is the Lord. But now we learn that he is the Lord who heals. And isn't it wonderful? It is precisely in the the need and in the poverty and indeed in the sin of God's people that we find out more about our living God. Friends, you know that that's the only way that we know anything beyond the, 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 the natural characteristics of God and the, the main characteristics of God that are extended even in creation. We would know that he's all-powerful. We would know that he is good even in creation. But friends, we would never know that he was merciful. We would never know about his grace. We would never know that he is a healing God unless there was disease. And so it is that in the midst of a fallen world and in the midst of the sin of God's people, we find out something wonderful about our living God and particularly the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great physician, the Lord who heals us. That's our title this evening, The Lord Who Heals, and just three points. The people thirst, the people complain, the Lord heals. The people thirst, the people complain, the Lord heals.
So first, the people thirst. Verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now we have to say that that is a long time for the people to go in the dry and thirsty wilderness. They would have had skins filled with water to drink from, and they would have had some animals that produced milk, but of course both of these things would have been dry by this point. But as we read about them, that they went and they found no water, and it certainly implies that they were looking for water, what don't we see? What don't we hear mention of? Prayer. We don't hear any indication that they were crying out to the Lord in the midst of it. They may have been looking as they were going for sources of water, but we have no indication that they were looking to the maker of all things. Then something like a a solution appears, something that appears to be a solution at least. In verse 23, Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah, which just means bitter. That's what it is. Now we don't know exactly where Marah was, but there are many, well, many, there are probably three different possibilities. And it was either a brackish spring, meaning mixed uh, fresh and salt water, which is... Uh, not so surprising in that particular location, or, it, or either a spring or a lake of some kind. And that means that it probably was visible to them afar off. It well could have been this brackish lake, which seems to be the most likely possibility. And that means as they were walking there on foot in the desert, and in the distance they see a lake. Now, imagine the disappointment when they get there and it turns out to be undrinkable. Well, here's an incidental application for us at this point. Matthew Henry, who is a master at the incidental application of God's word as we go through, says this, Note, God can embitter that to us which we promise ourselves most satisfaction, and often does so in the wilderness of this world that our wants and disappointments in the creature may drive us to the Creator in whose favor alone true comfort is to be had. Do you see what he's saying? They, no doubt, were putting, pinning their hopes on not God so much, but on this body of water that they saw glistening there before them in front of the desert. And they get there, and their hopes are bitterly disappointed. And sometimes God truly does this. That he embitters, he disappoints our expectations in this world so that our hope and expectation are set on him and not the things of this world, the creatures. Well, going back thus far, they did have a legitimate need and they do have some sin. It is a sin of omission, a failure to take these things to the Lord in prayer. And let's not forget that. That is a sin of omission. If you have a need, any need at all, and you have not brought it to the Lord recently in prayer, that is a sin of omission. He is your heavenly Father. He has told you that not only do you have permission, but you are commanded to bring all of your needs daily before him. And if you have some need that you're conscious of and you haven't done that, you are in sin in this way, and you should rectify it. But secondly, we move on to the second point, the people complain. We move on to a sin of commission. In verse 24, and the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? This sin of commission. Not only were they neglecting to pray, now 
They were they did open their mouths, not to the one that they really should have, and certainly not in the way that they should have. They're complaining against Moses. Now not every complaint is sinful. I was reminded in the larger catechism that there are times actually to complain uh, in a right and legitimate sort of way. Sometimes it's right. In the authority structures that God has given to us, if something is not as it should be, then there can and should be uh, a right kind of complaint. But this is not that. This is not that. The word means to murmur or to rumble, and that's what they were doing. It's sinful complaining. Now, granted, they had been all this time without water supply, and now they've been bitterly disappointed by the waters of Mar as they come there and find out that it can't be, it's not drinkable. But now this is sin. This is, this is unbelief. And here's how Calvin explains it. And this is where Calvin excels, explains how these things go. He says, no wonder then that they should have groaned with anxiety. But grief, when it is full of contumacy, which, and, and that means uh, rebellion, basically, deserves no pardon. In such emergency, they should have directed their prayers to God, whereas not only they neglected to pray, but violently assailed Moses and demanded of him the drink which they knew could only be given them by God. But because they had not learned to trust in him, they went not to him for aid, except by imperiously commanding him in the person of his servant to obey their wishes. For this interrogation, what shall we drink, is as much to say, arrange with God to supply us with drink. And they do not directly address God of whose assistance they felt they need because unbelief is ever proud. And let's, let's just piece a, little, a few of those things together here. This complaining in this way is tied to their unbelief, right? If they really believed that God was both willing, able and willing to supply all their needs, they would not have been in such a state. And that's tied to their pride, And pride does not ask God nicely at the right time, daily. Give us this day our daily bread and water. But merely complains when bad things happen. Do you see how that goes? Day one, they should have been praying to the living God. Day two, they should have been praying to the living God. Day three, they should have been praying. But no, 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 in their pride, they keep looking here and there as they go. Maybe this is a well, maybe that's a well. Oh, look, some water. Nope, nope, it's bitter. But now, now, they, now they're quite free. Their mouths, their, lo- their lips are loosened only to complain. Well, friends, that's why it's sin. That's why it's sin. People complain. And now these people, they are in great need, not only physically but also spiritually because they add to their physical necessity their sin. What does that bring us to? Well, we've, we've heard about man. These people are thirsty, they're in need, they don't, they're not able to provide for themselves, they're not able to save themselves, and they know it now, I hope. And also, they have complained, they are, they are sinners, what now? Thirdly, the Lord heals. It's a wonderful solution here. Verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord. Let's see what happens. Moses cried out to the Lord, and let's say, Moses, now I'll do it. Now I'll do my, by the way, uh, application. Moses does his job as an intercessor, and so should we. Um, These people probably weren't worthy of his intercession, but because of his association with him, particularly as their elder, but more so just as, as a believer, he was an intercessor for them, and he did what he was supposed to, and so should we. We should intercede on behalf of others. And the Lord showed him a tree, 
And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There it is. Why didn't we think of that? Well, of course, we didn't think of that. Of course, it's, uh, you, can, you can parse this any way you want to, but the fact is God needed to do this. We are struck with the mercy and goodness of our God for responding as he did because he would have been just. He would have been absolutely just to refuse to hear them, but instead he responds by immediately granting their request through Moses, right? Now, granted, it is Moses at this point. They, there was no problem of them previously calling out to the Lord. Now in their, their sin, they're still not crying out to the Lord. They're, they're complaining against Moses, but Moses intercedes on their behalf, just like Christ interceding on our behalf, and the Lord immediately responds, and does good to them because he is a good God. And we are struck again and again by the mercy and goodness of God. He is hitting us over the head with this wonderful reality. We can't escape it. Now the manner was to show him this particular tree which was then cast into the waters. Now whether it had any natural properties, is there, could there be a tree that would have some natural property to deal with bitter, undrinkable water? Probably so. Um, but we don't know for sure anyways, and it wouldn't have been sufficient given the amount of water involved in, in even a large tree wouldn't have been enough really to deal with it chemically. So at the very least, we know that the Lord magnified its capacity to heal the water, sort of like the way that he leads them to a relatively narrow place in the Red Sea, a place that is relatively shallow, and he, he greatly magnifies the natural situation miraculously to make a place for them to cross over on dry land. And it was convenient for them. The Lord used these things. And very often that's God's way. Um, it is not necessarily in a category of purely natural. There's no such category because God has designed and created all things for the good ultimately of his people. And then we don't have to say that it's, it's purely supernatural because in almost every circumstance, God uses to some extent some natural element. That's the way our God normally works. And he has a range, a vast range of ways that he does it. Anyhow, let me just say it's very similar to the situation we have in 2 Kings 2.19. Uh, then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. That's uh, useful for us if we have any consideration of, of moving ahead to build our own building. The situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. He says, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From there it shall no bring, bring, be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day according to the word of Elisha whom he spoke. See how that is. It was a token amount of something that had the ability to do something. But God in his blessing healed the entire source of water and it remains healed to this day. So that's how God did it. And beyond that, there he made a statute and ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, they are called the ten plagues for a reason. 
plagues are diseases, bad diseases. And these are the things that God brought upon their land, brought upon their crops, brought upon their cattle, and brought upon themselves, their own bodies, even culminating in the death of the firstborn. Plagues, diseases, God brought them upon a disobedient and stubborn people. And he says to his people, his beloved covenant people, he says, don't be like them. Don't be like those Egyptians in their stubbornness and their refusal to bow before me. And that was the, in the incipient problem. They already, this was a symptom. They walk, day one, where's the wells? Day two, where's the wells? Day three, false hope. And they don't cry out to the Lord. They're not humble in their hearts. It's just like the Egyptians, almost. It's beginning to look like that. Plague one, God smites them. Plague two, God smites them a little bit more. Plague three, God smites them even more and more and more. And they do not bow the knee, even to the end. They would prefer to die than to receive the healing of the living God. This is their problem. And he says... Look, if you receive me in humility, listen to my word, I'm not going to put on the diseases which I brought on the Egyptians. Rather, I will be to you one who heals. You see, to the Egyptians, I was the one who judged and brought the disease and destruction. But I want to be to you one who heals and blesses and brings you into the land, the promised land. Don't be like the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. And again, this is the center of our, of, our, of our sermon, of course. This is the main point. This is the revelation. He says, I am the Lord who heals you. That word means to mend, as in a piece of clothing, to repair, to pacify, to stitch together. He's healing these people that are broken. He is bringing health to those who are diseased. He can heal that salt water. But more than water, it was the people's hearts that were in desperate need of healing, friends. I hope you see that by now. Their most essential and most important need was not water because that is not, that's why the Lord explains this. He, yes, he takes care of their physical need. Yes, here you go. Here's your supply of water. But when he explains it and when he talks to them, He is speaking to them of the need of their heart, their spiritual problem, of which he says, friend, don't forget the Egyptians in their pride and disobedience and haughtiness. Don't be like that. And he is healing with them. He's healing them, yes, even through the testing that is happening. As they walk through this dry and flinty land, he recognizes there is much unbelief to be dealt with. And he has a plan for that. He is going to heal them of that. There's an easy way. They could listen to his word. Or there's a hard way. There's a quick quick road to the promised land that they could have taken. Or there's there's a longer road, a 40-year road. But one way or another, between, between now and when they actually make it into the promised land, they will be healed of their unbelief. They will eventually find out that he is the one and the only one who is able to provide for them, to bless them, to heal them. And he intends to do this. It's their hearts that are in desperate need of healing. 
Now, the very next thing that we see, we see again the goodness of God in all of this. In verse 27, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. And maybe you've experienced this in your life, but, you know, sometimes the Lord could well have just put us in exactly another trial and another trial and another trial. But in his kindness to us, very often he, he leaves us, he takes it easy and grants us seasons of blessing like this. They didn't have to repeat the cycle here. The Lord in his goodness brings them to a place of 12 wells. Not one, 12, 70 palm trees. Beautiful place. There's a place in the California desert that's named 29 palms because in desert places it's a notable thing. If there are palm trees which require a decent supply of water, and there are 29 of them, so a whole place takes its name from it. Here there were 70 palms. The goodness of God, his abundant provision. I would say an intermediate fulfillment of God being able to bring his his people into a place of blessing. An intermediate fulfillment of the promised land and ultimately of heaven. Sometimes God gives those things to us. Even in this life, he gives us a little peace of heaven, a place of rest and blessedness. We see it in Pilgrim's Progress, don't we? And on more than one occasion, he brings him into a palace beautiful. He brings him to a wonderful uh, river valley in which there is much fruit and refreshment to be found. And so he does with us because he's a good God. Well, this is all about the Lord who heals. The people, well, they, they only had their need. They had their thirst. And they add to that their sin of complaining. But the Lord is the one who healed them. And what do we say? How do we apply this? First of all, I would say to you, go to God for help. Go to God for help. Beloved, what is your first recourse in times of trouble? Who do you go to? Who gets the first phone call when everything around you is falling to pieces? Is it the Lord? Or is it someone or something else? How many days are you going to go into this wilderness This time, before you cry out to the Lord and really mean it, before you come to him as unconscious that he is the only one that can fix your problems, the only one who can heal you. Now, I would say particularly, yes, in terms of health, as he has revealed himself now, this is the only time in the Old Testament that he particularly reveals himself as the one who heals his people And so, of course, we should emphasize that element physically because, well, we are so thankful for medical technology in these days. So thankful. But we are more than ordinarily tempted then to neglect the living God who makes these things to work or not. Guess what? He uses means. There's the tree which he throws into the water, but God alone is the one who makes it work, friends. And of course he uses means like medical technology to heal his people. We, we certainly should avail ourselves of these things. But whether it works or not is in the hands of God. Those of you who are physicians and nurses ought to know this more than others. We must come to him first in prayer, understanding that he alone can heal. God says, I am the Lord who heals and we must believe him. Now, so it's physical. Of course it's physical. And that includes not only our health, but all of our financial needs and all these things. It is God who takes care of them. 
And I would add to that psychologically, because if, if we have a tendency to, to forget about God because of how good our situation is medically, actually we live in a time of terrible plague when it comes to mental health, psychologically. For reasons which we could get into some other time, we, we live in a time of an epidemic of mental illness of, of every sort. And what do God's people do in such things? I hope we understand that God is the one who is able and willing to heal us psychologically as well. Right? It's not just the ones of us who at times now or maybe who knows in the future who are, are in, in dire uh, mental health problems. But there's a whole spectrum, isn't there? A whole spectrum of things. And God, we should remember, is the one who is, is, is able to heal his people completely. And finally, spiritually, Jeremiah 8.22 asks the question, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Uh, one of the most powerful times I've heard this quoted is in the midst of a preacher in the, the 19th century. And he was preaching the law of God, and he was doing so with gusto and zeal and for a very prolonged amount of time. And eventually a fellow minister was stirred up in his heart and he stood up at the end of this and said, but is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician? Prompting the man to preach the gospel. Prompting him to say, yes, there is. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ has died. He has suffered the bitter curse. He has tasted the bitterness. He has drunk down that wine of the wrath of God. He has suffered the curse of the tree in order that we might be healed. What a glorious gospel. We who are as bad off as could be, and I hope we don't forget it. Right? We're always forgetting it. But we who could not be any worse off than what we are spiritually, God has sent us the great physician in order that we might be healed, and we should go to him for help. Certainly we go to God for help. Secondly, I'd say we should accept testing. This is a section we, we barely went over. When I said, there he made a statute and ordinance for them, and there he tested them. And I mentioned that this is part of his prescription, actually, for healing them. On the one hand, he deals with this need of water, and he hears his prescription. Throw in the tree, and it'll solve that. What's his prescription for fixing the people? Testing. Testing. Deuteronomy 8.16 reminds us that this is the way God deals in terms of their food. It's not just the water, of course. They need food. And soon enough we'll find out that he's going to provide for them using manna. And it says this in Deuteronomy 8.16, Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. It was in the situation of testing that he is doing them good. He, as the great physician, looks at them and says, you have a problem. You have pride in your heart. You have self-sufficiency in your heart. And I need to cure you of that. I need to, I'm going to prescribe a course of chemotherapy, which may not be pleasant. But I'm going to rid you of those things. And that's what he intends to do in testing that's why in James 1 it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, because that's what God wants you to be. Friends, I'm, I'm sometimes amazed at how easily people fall into all kinds of, of self-help things and false religions that the world has in order that they might better themselves. They recognize that they're not as good as they should be and they want to be better. We have a God who intends to make us absolutely perfect. And sometimes we think, well, we're, we've become Christians, we're going to throw ourselves, we should throw ourselves into evangelism and how we pray that the Lord would stir us up to do so on the eve of this Christianity Explored. But it's not just to bring other people into the church. We are here another day in order that God might perfect us, in order that God might do this work in us because he's the great physician. And so often... The medicine is testing. I don't like it. You don't like it. I wish we could hide. Sometimes we wish we could hide from it. But if if so, we'd be like the little child who doesn't like the taste of medicine and would prefer to avoid that which would actually heal her. We should accept God's testing. Thirdly and finally, we should use the means of grace. Use the means of grace. God has showed us a tree in which he has invested a certain peculiar power to do something that we need. It may not look like much, and I bet if they just showed up there and they would have looked at all the trees and it wouldn't have occurred to them that this particular tree had such a power. It, may look not, it might not look like much, but it works because God stands behind it and invests it with supernatural power, enabling it to do that which it surely would never have done apart from it. And friends, that is the means of grace. That is precisely the means of grace. We say we need healing, and we call out to him for healing, particularly uh, spiritually. And he prescribes for you a medicine. He says, receive the means of grace and avail yourself of the means of grace. And that means, of course, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. These are the primary means of grace. And I might even add to them maybe some secondary means. I was uh, interested to find that in the Sum of Saving Knowledge, which if you have that big book that contains the Westminster conf- uh, Confession and shorter and larger catechism, somewhere towards the end is the Sum of Saving Knowledge. And it's a gospel tract. And you know those Westminster divines did not do things halfway. 12,000 words long gospel tract. Horatius, uh, uh, not Horatius Bonar, but um, uh, uh, his, his biography of McShane uh, mentions that the Lord used this in the life of McShane as he read the Sum of Saving Knowledge, and it, it may have been an instrument of his own coming to faith. Well, in the midst of that, it actually mentions another means of grace besides the, the word sacraments and prayer. It mentions the government of the church. Hadn't thought of that. Well, these are the secondary means. The Sabbath day, church government, and the ministry are also these secondary means by which the means of grace are given to you. The, the Sabbath day is a day set apart in order that you might receive without interruption, without uh, distraction, the means of grace. The church government is set up primarily to guard the, the means of grace. What, what is it that the elders do? What is it the session does? Above all, 
It is to guard and to keep pure the means of grace, to make sure this pulpit is filled by someone who's going to preach the truth, to make sure that the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is administered and received in as much as possible, rightly. And then the ministry itself. God uses the ministry of men to deliver to you the means of grace. And the word of us to all of us, to some extent I understand preaching to the choir, but we should avail ourselves of the means of grace. Are you spiritually dry? How is your quiet time? How are your devotions? How are your family worships? Are we using even the things that God has given to us? Or he's, he pointed us to a tree and you say, Lord, please help me. There's a tree. Please help me. There's the tree. Go to where the tree is. Use the means of grace that God has appointed. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, the Lord who heals us, what a beautiful thing indeed. Lord, our, 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 our consciousness, our understanding of the depth of the human problem just continues on and on, and we are reminded of how terrible we are. Here these people within days of the greatest victory that had been to that point, and one of the greatest in all of history, had seen you work in such amazing ways, had so soon turned to unbelief and to grumbling and complaining. But Lord, we are no better, we confess. How thankful we are at the end of all these things, you reveal yourself as the one who brings healing, one who is able and willing to heal us. And so, Lord, we come to you, believing that you are able, and asking that you might heal us of all that ails, Yes, Lord, we cry out to you for all of our physical needs and psychological, but ultimately and most importantly, spiritually. And we ask, Lord, indeed, that you might make great use in this year ahead of the means of grace to heal your people entirely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.